I'm Luke Story. I'm Christine Loria. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I'm Angie Check. Hi, I'm Ricky Lake. I'm Dr. Aaron Eugwin McMorrow. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm James Goodlatte. I'm Kyle Kingsbury. I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Mark Groves. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Jesse Golden. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Marin Green. I'm Kelly Brogan, MD. Je m'appelle Rick Safries, et c'est le podcast du gynécologue holistique. Hello, I'm Paul Check, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. If you're not familiar with this show, I'm not here to bash the medical system. I'm here to help build a life raft for all the women who have felt let down or just unseen by the medical system. And I'm talking about the conventional medical system of the United States, the same medical system that supports 30 to 40% C-section rates. If you didn't hear episode 80 with Jacqueline Wolf, a PhD historian at Miami University on the sordid history of C-section in the United States, you, you should go back and listen to that episode. The, the, the fact that C-section rates have risen to 30 to 40% should sound dystopian to you. And my guest today is Christine Laurie. She's an international midwife who, who attends to women in birth around the world in some of the most resource-poor settings, like refugee camps. She tells stories about when she was in South Sudan, and there's not a surgeon available to do a surgery like a C-section unless absolutely necessary. You know, they're, they're a general surgeon that can do every other surgery around, and now they're going to do a C-section. That's generally the domain of OBGYNs. But this, in this setting, there's only one surgeon for the whole camp. So the midwives, and she being the director of midwifery at Doctors Without Borders in her camp, was sort of like forced to consider like, well, what can we do for this baby to come out vaginally? And as a result, their C-section rates are lower than they are in the United States. Like, imagine that. So this incredible woman, Christine, has traveled the world. She also is a one of the instructors for Breach Without Borders. As you know, I'm a huge fan of them. Uh, if you are a birth worker out there and you haven't done any Breach-specific training, find Breach Without Borders. Find a, um, a workshop coming to a town near you. I host one every single year in Louisville, which has been growing exceedingly popular. And there are so many midwives here and, and birth workers. And I haven't seen another OBGYN yet to one of these workshops. That's because midwives midwives is where it's at mid the midwifery care model especially through the lens of the wise woman this is where it's at and christine laurie is definitely one of those people amidst all of her work as a midwife there's also been plenty of opportunities for have to midwife people through very challenging end of life processes especially the end of you know a mother's life just after having given birth or the end of a, a baby's life who didn't survive childbirth and we talk about this it's a really intense conversation she texted me right afterwards and was like that was really intense, but God, thank you. Thank you so much for, for letting me just talk about those things. Sometimes storytelling the, in the lack of ritual around bad things and good things, I think that's actually one of the things that, that harms us the most over the long haul. So Christine is no stranger to ecstasy nor to tremendous emotional pain through this process, but that is the work of a midwife. That is the work of every healer. A lot of us just don't want to look into that darkness, and Christine has been forced to. And as a result, she's able to provide the best bedside care, I'm sure, to every woman who comes to her in need. So you're going to love this conversation. I, I adore Christine. I'm so grateful that Rick Safries put us in touch. 
Um, before we get into the episode, I do need to uh, tell you real quickly about a new sleep aid that has come to my attention. Bioptimizers makes, hands down, probably the, one of the most popular magnesium supplements on the planet. It has seven distinct types of magnesium in, in the Magnesium Breakthrough product that is their bestseller. I have used it. I use it probably on a, a weekly basis. I used to use it more frequently, but I've gotten some other sleep hygiene things in order, like getting a pair of um, blue light blocking glasses from uh, Luke Story's new brand, Gilded. It has really, really changed the game for me. If you are interested in trying out a pair of their, their blue light blocking glasses, you can go to my, my shop where I have all of my discount codes, belovedholistics.com slash shop, or just go straight to Gilded's website. Use code Nathan10 to save 10%. And after you've done all of that, I still want you to consider, do you sometimes find yourself laying awake at night, not, you know, tossing and turning, thinking about the things you haven't done, the email you didn't send, whatever you struggle with going to sleep. So you end up using alcohol or drugs or whatever else to fall asleep. You don't need to do that. You're going to go to magbreakthrough.com slash holistic OBGYN, pick up a bottle of their magnesium, take two capsules with a tall glass of water, 30 to 45 minutes before sleep. Let me know how you feel in the morning. If you don't feel markedly better, I will be damn surprised. <laughs> I really will. I really will. I really believe in this product. I really love Wade Lightheart, Wade Lightheart the owner of Bioptimizers. And I love what he's put together with some of these products. If you go to magbreakthrough.com slash holisticobjuan, Bioptimizers is offering an additional incentive for you to try magbreakthrough. If you buy three bottles or more, you're going to get Mass Symes and P3OM, two other products very, very popular products to buy optimizers. I use Masszymes when we have big meals, and I know that I'm going to have a little bit of trouble digesting it before I go to bed. Masszymes is a digestive aid. It helps to break down the food so that your microbiome can do the work of getting the right nutrients into your bloodstream. And speaking of microbiomes, they're also going to throw in a bottle of P3M, which is like the Navy SEAL of probiotics. You're going to take that. It's going to support your microbiome. You're going to take the Masszymes to help break down the food so your microbiome, which is now healthy, can do the work of transporting all the important nutrients from your intestines into your bloodstream in order to do their work around the body. If you buy five bottles or more, they're actually going to throw in an additional gift, which is their HCL breakthrough. HCL is what's produced in the stomach to help break down your food before it even goes into the intestines. And whenever you go to your doctor and say, I'm getting heartburn or reflux or whatever, and I lay down at night and they'll say, oh, just take this acid blocker, PPI, an antihistamine, take some Tums, whatever. You're neutralizing the acid in the stomach, which might take the burning feeling away, but you're not actually fixing the underlying issue, which is that you don't have enough acid to break down the food in order for it to pass into the intestines. So stop with the acid blockers, stop with the Tums, try adding some HCL breakthrough to those big meals that do give you heartburn. And again, let me know how you feel. I guarantee you're going to feel better. So all of this is to say that if you go to magbreakthrough.com slash holisticobjuan, you buy one bottle of Mag Breakthrough, you're going to feel better sleeping. But if you buy three or more, you're going to get all these extra goodies. Again, it's magbreakthrough.com slash holisticobjuan. I can't recommend Bioptimizers enough. Wade's an incredible dude. I was introduced to him through Paul Check, as, as I have you know, met many people. And uh, I really believe in what, he, what he's doing here with Bioptimizers. He puts his heart and soul into these products. So, so check them out, support them, because they are supporting us. And I wouldn't have them here as a sponsor if I didn't believe in their work. All right. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, please welcome my good friend to the show, Christine Laria. Christine Laria, thank you so much for coming on the show. 
in all of your travels and everything that you've done, you're a writer, you're a midwife, you are a, as far as I'm concerned, you're a wise woman in the sense that you have such a, uh, such a language and such a, an experience in your life that to have you on the show is, is quite literally an honor. So thank you for take, taking a, a few minutes out of your day to, to speak with me today. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's, I'm delighted to be here. Nobody's ever called me a writer before, so let alone made that the first time. <laughs> well, I think you're going to be writing uh, for probably longer than you're even midwifing necessarily, just because you have had such incredible experiences, which we're going to talk about. And I hope to be able to open the world's eyes up through this podcast to the realities of being a midwife. And so maybe very briefly, and everybody has a different definition of midwife. So we're going to get into that. But first and foremost, just tell everybody, what do you do? How long have you been doing it for? And I don't want to spoil. I just want you to lay it out. Tell everybody what you do. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I've been a midwife for 33 years. And um, I started out uh, doing home births in the U.S. primarily. Did a traditional apprenticeship long before there was a CPM or not too much longer before there was a CPM. But Prior to that, and I, I specifically chose a traditional midwife route and not CNM. It just didn't seem, um, it just didn't resonate with me as much. Um, and then after, after a couple of decades attending births at home, I, I realized I wanted, um, I wanted to see more. First of all, I wanted to um, be in service to women who otherwise wouldn't get care. Um, I was very interested in doing humanitarian aid. So it was um, was a dream of mine when my son was, uh, once he turned 18, to apply to MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders, as they call it, in the, here in the U.S., and, um, and do humanitarian aid with them. And so I did, and I was uh, accepted into their pool. And so since then, I have been traveling to remote areas of the world doing just what I wanted to do and seeing more than I ever thought I would see and just learning so much. It's just, it's really been incredible for me. I always feel like I get way more back than I ever give, but I will tell you, I, I give a lot sometimes. So, um, but I love the work and I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. It seems to me to do the work you've done, and we're going to get into some harrowing stories of what you've experienced in South Sudan in particular. Um, did you serve in other countries as well through MSF or were you? Okay. Yes. Where did you go? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Sierra Leone, oh, wow. Bolivia, um, Mozambique, Bangladesh. Um, and prior to MSF, I was in uh, Afghanistan for six months. Wow. Um, that was back in 20, 2018, I think. So. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and we that, that was in a maternity hospital in the Panjshir Valley, and we were doing over seven hundred births a month. Oh. So, a lot. Wow. so I was doing maybe twenty five breaches in 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 a month. I would say twenty five breaches. So there's a people out there listening who, if if you don't know, a breach is when the baby's butt down, and we in the United States are desperately trying to teach the maneuvers that would be required if, in the rare circumstance, a baby got caught up with an arm around the neck or hyper-extended neck, you know, neck or something like that, because we stopped altogether, you know, quote, offering this to birthing women in the United States. And so many of us haven't even seen a single breach, let alone, and I, of course, have, but many doctors like me have never even seen a breach. You've done, you were doing 25 
at a time <laughs> on these on these yeah. missions. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And I think it's also important to note that all of the countries you listed, MSF is only working there, Doctors Without Borders, is only working there because there must be a paucity of medical access or even healthcare practitioners that are able to attend or have the experience to, to attend and, and keep women relatively you know, safe and sound through birth. Which of those locations would you say was in most desperate need of support? Where were you oh, most wow. needed if you, if you could label it? Probably the refugee camps. There was the one in South Sudan and then the one in Bangladesh. Um, we have several projects within the refugee camp in, uh, in Bangladesh because it's an enormous camp. There's almost a million people in this camp, if wow. you can imagine, wow. a Rohingya refugees. So, so we, were, we had a, a large presence there, and I just worked in one of the projects. So, but in, um, in South Sudan... Uh, there were about 100,000 refugees in this particular camp, and we were the only referral uh, hospital. And I use hospital in little, little quotes. It's more like a ma- if you saw MASH on TV, yeah. it's more like that big giant tents, and that's how we're operating. So not brick and mortar in any kind of way. So we were a referral a hospital for um, anything that uh, anybody else couldn't do or was high risk or somebody needed a transfusion. So any twins or breaches or um, eclampsias and placenta previous, sometimes the patients were flown in if there was a flight available from another project. And sometimes they just walked in or were referred from another uh, clinic in the camp that just didn't do anything other than straightforward birth. So we weren't supposed to just have somebody walk in having a baby. Um, Once in a while, we would get somebody in labor just having a baby. And she was too far along to refer her to where she was actually supposed to birth. So everything we were doing was considered um, high risk. Were were they doing C-sections in the camp as well? like in the hospital? So, yeah. So my job specifically as um, the midwife manager was to make the decision when to call in the surgeon. So there's no obstetrician. We have a general surgeon um, and then they switch out every about six to eight weeks because they work 24 seven. Wow. Constantly. So they get tired very quickly and surgery is very taxing. Yeah. I'm sure. So, um, all the different surgeons would switch out and they had any degree of experience with C-sections. Um, and so it was quite interesting, but we only do within MSF, we only do cesareans for maternal indications. Hmm. We never do it if we detect fetal distress or because a baby is breach or because, or, or even transverse, I'm expected to deal with that. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's usually placenta previa, quite honestly, is what I refer for marginal placentas, um, placentas that are low lie have gone in and, oh, she's four. And there is a placenta at seven o'clock, you know, like you could feel a little edge edge just just tickling there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's just like, okay, well let's, and, but, and she's bleeding, but not so much. Okay. So let's continue to monitor the bleeding. And as long as she doesn't bleed too much, we're doing that birth vaginally. We are not referring for surgery. So and, and how did the babies do? We're going to talk about moms because I think moms are probably at higher risk in this in this environment um, just because, you know, your mom, the mom is really the vessel that's carrying this organ system. You know, call it what you will, the, the, the fetal placental unit in and of itself within this uterus 
is an organ system and the mom's physiology is supplying that organ system. So if the mom's physiology starts to fail, then we end up with a true emergency. But in the United States, like you said, we're using C-sections for everything from a drop on the unvalidated continuous fetal heart rate strip to, uh, like you said, a low-lying placenta, which may or may not bleed. But hey, it's a one in a thousand. We better just cut our losses here and go to the the C-section. I I, I kind of feel like we've de-skilled OBGYNs in the United States by only giving them two tools. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. it's a vacuum. Sometimes it's a scalpel. And mm-hmm. and the fetal heart rate tracing isn't even a tool because it's not useful. It's it's almost it's it tells me everything's okay, but it doesn't tell me that things are necessarily bad. It's this unvalidated right. piece of software. So I'm guessing you didn't have a lot of those interventions at hand necessarily in order to make everybody stressed out in the first place. I'm curious about mm-hmm. about how you kept the C-section rates down. Was it just out of necessity or was it just that you knew that, hey, this baby's going to be better off and the mom's going to be better off given the conditions, conditions if we're not calling surgery every five seconds like we do in the hospitals? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, my C-section rate was um, just under 5%. Um, but we, so I have to follow the guidelines, which are basically maternal indications only. So if there's a complete previa and she's bleed, even if she's not bleeding, but we'll get her into, into OT, but, um, for everything else, we have to, um, we have to do our best to get that baby out. So it, it is very unusual to have, um, failure to progress there because these are these women have been birthing vaginally for centuries without mm. the intervention of cesarean section up until just you know in these recent this recent generation so that means they're they have adequate pelvises their babies are not big um these babies are maybe three kilos tops but usually somewhere between two and um uh, um 2.5 and so not huge babies, but they are very hardy babies. And so if someone can't get a baby out, there's a good reason for it. And it's usually a, a very big asynclitic baby with, you know, there's other multiple things going on. And we try everything, including oxytocin and vacuum and every uh, positional change known to humankind. And then I have to come to the point where we have tried everything. Then I call the surgeon and say, listen, we need to, sometimes we'll see some blood in the, we we put a catheter in, right? So sometimes we've seen some blood in the catheter and we're like, no, this isn't good. So we know then that we're going to end up with fistulas and any number of other complications with the mom. And I don't want that. And then there's a fine line between calling it too soon and calling it too late because you want an alive baby. And even if there is fetal distress, you can't, we can't just say, oh, C-section for fetal distress. But if the baby starts to distress and we're already having some difficulties, I will call it then. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, four, four, four percent, four to five percent was my was my rate. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, in the yeah, World Health I'd Organization. Stand by every single one of them that yeah. more, I had five previous in, in one month, if it hadn't been for those previous and they flew some of them in. So, um, so if it hadn't been for those, it would be even less, but sure, and, sure. Yeah, for, for, um, obstructed labor. And once those babies came out, you could see, um, this very 
big asynclitic, you know, mm, spot on the, mm-hmm. on the head where the baby did try to get through. And the baby was very large and um, in a couple of the instances, and it just wasn't going to, sure, it just wasn't sure. going to happen. Yeah. I mean, contrasting that with, again, how OBGYNs are trained, we get so good at doing C-section that it, in a, in a resource rich setting where an operating room is right there and we've done it, I could do it in 37 seconds. I can get that baby out. When you start to tout those as our, our ultimate virtues, our threshold for doing these C-sections goes down and down and down. Even if we recognize, which in the United States, it's not like we aren't recognizing the problems with doing a primary C-section unnecessarily because then again, your second, third, fourth pregnancies are now C-section. And those, those surgeries get exponentially more difficult and at higher, you know, put, putting the, the woman and the baby at higher risk down the road, not to mention, you know, placenta accretas and increta percreta. I mean, like all these other things that may develop as a result of that first C-section. But hey, we've got surgery skills out the wazoo. We'll just ramp it up next time. And then we'll ramp it up again next time. As, instead of saying, okay, what if we didn't have an access to a C-section? What is the risk and benefit of trying to get this baby out vaginally. But unfortunately, we just too easily fall into this stream of, hey, let's just do a C-section, right? We've almost made it, it's almost like a joke now, where it's like, oh, you don't want to go through labor, let's just do a C-section. But if you're in a resource-poor setting, and I, I just am using that term for lack of better terms, you now don't have access, perhaps even to an experienced OBGYN, um, you know, even a general surgeon may not be all that comfortable with a big honking uterus and all these big blood vessels. So you're actually potentially predisposing them to greater harm by doing this last ditch mm-hmm. effort of C-section. And I want just wonder if we had if we looked at at childbirth in our hospital system through the lens of let's let's just pretend like we don't have an operating room. How would maternity care change? Mm-hmm. probably pretty dramatically, I would think, um, yes. reserving that only for 5% of our births, but instead it's upwards of 40% in parts of the country. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you, you did have a, you know, some maternal deaths. So let's talk about that because right before we started recording, you emphasized that we did everything we possibly could to save the mother, but sometimes women die in childbirth. And that's sort of the burden of the people surviving this woman who died in childbirth. It's kind of on you to carry that burden. So where do you want to start with that conversation? Because I do think it's important for people to, to see this part of your practice. Tell me a little bit about, about a, a couple instances in South Sudan. Yeah. Um, do you want to hear specifically about maternal deaths or near misses? or Maybe tell one of each. How about that? Let's start with a near miss. Okay. Really, the most recent one was literally the day I was leaving. I got called, I left at noon, but I got called into maternity at 3am. So just before I was leaving, and it was a uh, multiple with um, that had had twins, and the babies were fine, everything was fine. And but the mother was had hemorrhaged and I came in to check, they were supposed to call me when she got there. But they're always supposed to call me for twins mm-hmm. when when they arrive. But she came and got on the table and literally spit both babies out within two minutes. Like there was Whoa. no one came out and then the other came out. It was very fast. Yeah. And then she bled and then they still didn't call. Me. Then they called it after the fact to tell me that they had had this, but the bleeding, it was under control. Everything was fine. 
and it was 3 a.m. and I was leaving soon and I got to thinking I should just go down there to make sure everything's really okay. And I'm very glad that I did because I got there and and I saw that uh, they were both just, they had a bag of saline hanging um, and they were giving her oxytocin. And I, and I asked what her hemoglobin was. I asked what her blood pressure was and they gave me these blank stares. So I got them into, you know, into action to do all these things. And her hemoglobin was three and her blood three. pressure was oh my gosh. almost non-existent. And I, I would like to say hemoglobin of three, like was shocking to me, but I had seen it so many times. Wow. The lowest I saw there was two, but, uh, and we transfuse at six. So, and transfusion is not easy because yeah. what you need is the family to donate the blood because we don't have a blood bank. So you have to rally the family and then they have to be screened and not everyone passes this. As soon as somebody's screens and they have malaria, they can't donate the blood. Mm. So, um, so it's a big process. It's not like we got her blood within five minutes, which is what normally would happen. Sure. It took probably at least an hour to get some blood in the meantime, uh, she was decompensating. She started gasping. I got oxygen on her. She started, I did some, some I, uterine massage, more clots were coming out. And then she started dumping more blood. And I'm like, okay, this is, uh, and I remember clearly thinking this woman is going to die and I am leaving in a few hours. This is awful. Mm. Like I, in so many ways, it just was not, I, I remember clearly thinking that and, um, it was, that was, it was just sobering, but it, it made me just continue doing what I was doing. I called in the midwife that was replacing me. I called in, um, we don't have obstetricians, but I called in one of the MDs. She was nice. She spoke English very well. She was from Holland, I think. And I'm one, I, I figured if this woman was going to die, I wanted as many people around me as possible to be like, yeah, we all did everything that we could, right? This was my Wow. you know, my line of thought, I knew there wasn't much more that they could do. We were doing everything that we could do, but I wanted them there just because why should I have to be alone? Mm. Um, and so we, um, her blood within, yeah, I would say about an hour. And then she started dumping more blood. And so we did get that. I did some bimanual compression we were able to get it to stop again that time. We had given her um, miso. We, she had a pit. She had um, TXA, everything, everything. Mm. So it was all we could do. And uh, the MD and I said, you know, we, we decided that we would call the surgeon the next time. If she started to dump again, we were calling. And we did call and get him on standby. Um, and fortunately, she didn't dump any more blood. And she did end up getting, while I was there, she got two units. I mean, she probably needed so many more. I think she ended up getting maybe three total, which is probably the best that we could hope for. And so, yeah, that was a harrowing about maybe three hours of my, of my last day there. Um, and then the patient, the very next patient was a patient with her hemoglobin was, no, it wasn't her hemoglobin. It was her 
her platelets were seven and she had that's not enough (laughs) Uh, no that's not nearly enough and I'm like what is going on here and I thought I thought I thought also that she would die but she was going to die after I left and somehow they pulled her through this DIC I don't know how because Mm. she was so incredibly sick it was amazing um, that they got her through it but I two near misses in 24 hours basically wow oh yes yes absolutely I was it was terrifying um, and, uh, so then in terms of the, um, the deaths that occur generally in worldwide, but particularly in Africa, you know, the leading cause of death, maternal death is hemorrhage mm-hmm. and then it's sepsis and then it's hypertensive disorders and, um, unsafe abortion, believe it or not. Um, So those are the leading, some of the leading causes. I didn't lose anybody from any of those things uh, during this project, but we did have um, a little epidemic of um, hepatitis E. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to a number of people who said hepatitis, what? (laughs) Like (laughs) E? I didn't even know there was an E. I'm like, there's an E. Highly infectious. Yeah. Exactly. And you can get it and I can get it and we can be just fine and go on and live our lives and then it's gone and it's fine. And it's absolutely deadly in the second and third trimester for for mothers. And I think there's like a 30% mortality rate. And I think you you get it concurrently with hepatitis B, right? Isn't it a a co-infection, something Mm -hmm. like that? Yeah. You know, it's one of those things we learn throughout residency to always know about, but you don't see it in in the United States almost ever. Mm -hmm. So, um, but wow, dreaded hepatitis E. Okay, go on. And this is like uh, story time with with Dr. Loria. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I had a patient who came in. My staff was very good at recognizing these hepatitis E patients because they were very jaundiced. They, they just had a particular look. And when they called me in and they pointed and they said, I think she has hepatitis E, I believed them Hmm. because they saw something that I couldn't see. And, um, and they were good at it. And I, and because our rule was we, because it was so infectious, we would not let them into maternity. They had to wait until we determined that yes, they needed to be tested for hepatitis E, and then we could move them to isolation. And we only had isolation in our TB ward. So then that required me to call an MD to come and say, yeah, let's move her to the TB ward and test her and rule this out. We all decided together that yes, she warrants testing. And everybody we did that with Hmm. um, what uh, did uh, test positive. So this particular, this particular patient came in and she was very sick. So, but she came in, she was um, already in respiratory distress and um, she was very jaundiced. She was about 23 weeks pregnant, I think. And we didn't have any room in TB isolation. So they moved her to COVID isolation and uh, I followed her over there and I, I don't know, you know, we, we put oxygen on her, um, but there was not a whole lot that we could do because she was already in the end stages. And it got to the point where I had seen, I had seen enough 
women come in and the stages of hepatitis E that I could determine exactly mm. about almost exactly how long that they would live. And I, it, that that's just not, that's very disturbing to me that I could do that. But I, this one, I said, Oh, she's not, this is the end. Like she's not this, this, she's not going to live much longer. And she lived about three more hours. Wow. And um, if you've never heard anybody um, really struck to breathe, gasping for air at the very end, her heart rate was in the one eighties and her, and she just was just making these very, um, very disturbing gasping noises. And it was just, it was hard to listen to. It was hard to be there with um, the family member who was sitting with her. Um, but all the national staff, as soon as somebody knows, as soon as the staff knows that the patient is not going to survive, they all, they go, they leave, they're attending the people that they can actually help. So it's like, we can't do anything more for her. We've given her the oxygen. That's all we can do. Um, if somebody's in pain, we will give them some, sometimes they're agitated before they get to that unconscious yeah. Place, and then we can give them some some Valium or or something. Um, so we do treat those things, but at the end, there's not a lot we can do, and so they just go off and they're with other patients. But I didn't feel like I could um, that I wanted to leave her. I didn't yeah. feel like I could could do that, and so I stayed with her and until she passed. And it was you know um, it was. I don't, I don't know. I, there aren't any words. There just aren't. Mm. It's not a pleasant way to die. Um, and I had three, four other patients that died like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as, as you and I have discussed and given that I'm, my two trainings, interestingly, are in birth as an OBGYN and death as a hospice and palliative care doc. I, I tell people I kind of stopped counting at a thousand births, a thousand deaths. I've been to a lot of both. But even, but if you're mm-hmm. present with one death, you start to get some more perspective. And now I think in the United States, especially in the medical community, we kind of shy away from the conversation around mortality. Yeah. And if you're if you're a pregnant woman going through birth... It is a scary experience. It's exciting. It's joyful. It can be very ecstatic for a lot of people. The gravity of the of the experience of giving birth, I think, is is only paralleled with the experience of facing your mortality and death, where there's this this portal you're passing through and you don't know what's on the other side. And that is either, you know, it sounds like I'm I'm being whimsical here, but even in my experience with my own wife, having two, having had two babies and our second baby was a two hour labor in our bed bedroom, 50 feet from here. She definitely, you know, she goes into a different place and there is a separate conversation she's having with herself, with, with God, with, with whatever. And I think when you have the privilege of sitting with death, it actually helps you understand and appreciate this, this, the complexities of birth. So I appreciate you so much sharing that. I want to take a quick pause and I want to, um, I want to share a little reading that you did, which is only about four minutes long. Um, is it okay if I embed that into the show and then we'll pick up our conversation? Sure. Okay. So the, what you guys are about to hear is a, uh, it's a YouTube video. Christine Laurie is reading a, uh, a piece that she, she produced called Temporary Mother, which is reflecting on standing in as a temporary mother for an infant whose mother died in childbirth. Let's just listen to that and then we'll come back to the conversation. 
Because you were not here, I put your son in the baby sling, the same sling I used when my own son was an infant. Since leaving your womb, he has had breathing issues, and it was imperative that he stays calm. And because you were not here, I nursed him until he fell from my breast into a deep, contented sleep. I still have milk even though I've long since weaned my son, and I've never been one to let something go to waste. Sometimes on my way through the village, heading to the clinic, I stop in and check on him. I lean over and peer into his bed, the inhaler lying next to him, just in case. He looks up at me with these huge, brown, adoring eyes and gives me a toothless smile that melts my heart. Yes, he is smiling now. It's a smile that's meant for you, but you are not here. On market day, I put him into the sling, and we head to the marketplace. It's unbelievably hot, but it's always hot in Africa. When we arrive, we wade through a sea of color, the women in their dazzling finery. It's a feast for the eyes. I imagine this is how you would dress for market if you were here. The women eye me suspiciously, curiously, some amused, some puzzled, they're not quite sure what to make of the white lady with her little brown baby in the sling. There are good days and bad days, like any mothers have with an infant. On slow days at the clinic, I often take him to work with me. All in all, he's a very easy baby, a happy boy. He does not know that you are not here. The night came when he was struggling to breathe, as sometimes happens. The inhaler did not work. They took him to the hospital. The next morning they came to me with the news, news that was meant for you, but you were not here. So I made the long journey into the city. I went to the morgue and I retrieved his body. They gave him to me because you were not here. I washed his beautiful, perfect body and dressed him all in white, as is the custom. And then I wrapped all four months of him in a little white blanket I had brought. I held him close one last time and told him how much I loved him, just as I thought you would do if you were here. And then I kissed him on his tiny cold forehead, and I lay him gently in the box. The man sealed it shut. When he saw my eyes brimming with tears, he asked, Are you his mother? All I could think was, does feeling like my heart has been ripped out of my chest and thrown on the ground, shattering to a million pieces, make me his mother? I opened my mouth to speak, but words did not come. Very unceremoniously, we went to the cemetery, and I buried your son. After all, someone had to do it, and you were not here. A profound, excruciating grief washed over me in the days that followed. Eventually, I put it to rest, although the grief had already taken root, as mother's grief is known to do. I went on with my daily life, working to combat the maternal mortality rate in sub-Saharan Africa, because giving birth and dying is something no woman should ever have to do simultaneously although over 300,000 women worldwide each year, like you, 
will do just that. Now, with nothing more than memories and a photo of him nestled in the sling that sits on my bedside table, a gentle reminder that he was once here, I'm left with the solace of knowing now he is finally with you. Thank you. Okay, so Christine, thinking back to that piece, can you just reflect, like, what's the first thing that comes up for you about that story? I guess just how sweet Emmanuel was and uh, how tragic the whole situation was. That happened many years ago. That was before I was with MSF. I went to um, Ghana. My son was with me. He was four years old at the time. And... uh, so birth had was only four years away from from me. I, it was still quite fresh, and but um, you know it was a tragic situation all around because I just don't think that I you know babies in Africa if their mothers die. So by World Health Organization um, definition, if a mother dies, the child is an orphan because. The father, it doesn't matter if there's a father present or not, they're defined as an orphan in these developing countries oh, because without the mother, the child has children under five have a very low survival rate, and especially infants. And I have seen that to be true because there's nobody that's going to take care of those babies um, like the mother does. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think about all of that. And now that I've, you know, seen. Uh, maternal mortality up close it um you know it has a whole different meaning i think but that story is very special to me i have emmanuel's picture up in my bedroom oh um, wow on my, yeah on my um dresser so yeah, i think yeah, i think it's important to to note that the story that you told that we just heard was actually a a sort of consolidated version of a longer story that you've written up in Natural Transitions magazine, which we'll link in the show description for anybody to read. It's a beautiful piece, uh, Christine. I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. To go one step further with that, I'm curious, being a person, you're, you're now back in the United States, but your work with MSF and seeing such unusual things through the lens of birth work that many people never will get to experience, whether it's the death of a mom during childbirth or just operating in a uh, a setting in which you just have to figure things out. How does it, when you, when you reflect on your experiences outside the country, maybe even specifically around death and dying and birth sort of in the same, in the same container, how do you bring those experiences into your work in the United States? How does it, how does it, um, how does it inform the care you provide for women now going forward in life? Yeah, I, you know, I don't work so much um, here in the U.S. when I'm back. I sometimes fill in for midwives or I, I step in for some twins or breaches uh, if I'm called in by families or a midwife. But I mean, I, it's not so much that in, it informs my work. as my, it, it, it actually it's really transformed my whole life. I would have to say it's made more mindful than I ever would have been. And I'm, I have so much gratitude for the simplest things and 
And I don't take anything for granted because I know how fragile life is. Hmm. So really it's informed all of that. I just feel, um, I feel like it's uh, death is something I think about on a daily basis and not to be not in a morbid way, but I'm just aware this might be it. I, it might, today might be the last, I don't know. Or when I have an interaction with another person, um, I find that I, I say things to people. If somebody comes um, on my mind or in my heart and I'm thinking about them and I'm thinking all these wonderful things, I'll use, I'll send them a text or if I yeah. can, I'll call them and I'll be like, hey, I was just thinking about you and how awesome I didn't get to say that. So I make a point of always doing that now with mm. people um, whenever they enter my mind, because I know that we don't have we don't always have tomorrow. Yeah. So in yeah. that way, it's a it's a it's really a positive thing. I'm not at all afraid of death. It doesn't um, that it doesn't bother me at all, which is why I don't mind being with um, people when they're transitioning into that. Um, and often when I was in Afghanistan, we had lots of preterm babies in the 22, 23 week, you know, just not savable, but these babies would come out alive mm. and nobody, and, and they would wrap them up and they would put them, in the little nursery area and just let them be there until they died. And I'm like, that's not okay. And so often I would be making rounds, doing my duties, and I would be carrying this little baby around with me because I did not want this baby to die alone. I don't think anybody should die alone. It didn't matter. This, this didn't matter that this baby could not survive. I knew that. But I just didn't want the baby to be dying alone in a room. So I carried them around. I know that the staff thought that I was absolutely insane, but it gave me comfort. It, when I could, I tried to get the mothers to hold the babies until they passed. Some of them would, oh, some of gosh. them wouldn't. Um, it was, it's a cultural thing. They're, they're yeah. afraid of that. They don't want anything like, Oh no, that's not something they wanted to do. So, but I, in, in South Sudan, I had a, a 23 week baby. Maybe. I mean, the, I, eyes were shut like that it was a tiny baby this baby lived like eight hours ten hours like a really long time and we kept coming back and we, and the mother was so sweet she was a primate a little 17 year old primate then and I went there at one point and she was dripping colostrum onto uh oh. this baby's lips and I was just it was just so touching and so heartbreaking all at the same time and uh, it was so, so sad when that baby passed. Yeah. I mean, we all knew it would. And we told her that it can't survive, but it didn't mean she wasn't going to mother it up until the end. So I think those things, you know, I I wouldn't, those things are just really, um, those memories are very dear to me. And I wouldn't uh, trade those experiences yeah. for the world as much as they hurt my heart. Yeah, I don't want to offer any language that would seem like a bypass of that experience. And working in hospice and actually caring for babies who are, you know, they the mother wants to carry the baby all the way until the baby decides it's time to go. And maybe this baby makes it to 37 weeks and then dies just hours after birth. Well, a lot of people may, on the surface, yes, it's very sad. Like, life is hard. Babies and moms sometimes die. We all eventually have to die. It, for whatever reason, is is so confronting to us that you only have three hours of life. 
And you know, in in a in a in a world where we are so determined to live forever, that three hours just isn't enough time. And I want to add that in the way that that little twenty-seven weeker was cared for by their mom, for even those several hours, that baby's seven hours of life could only be described as unconditional love. And even when we live a hundred years old, there's a whole bunch of time in that hundred years where we're not being exposed to love, but actually hate or greed or bigotry or whatever else. And this baby experienced a hundred percent of his or her life in, you know, being loved, which again, I'm not trying to bypass or to, to, to take anything away from the incredibly hard experience of that mother. And that is oftentimes the only thing we're left to sort of reconcile is that, Hey, it was short, but man, she was being held by Christine Loria. She was being fed colostrum from her mother, who's mourning the loss of her baby and celebrating the birth all in the same moment. There's something deeply impactful about this birth and death experience that is also simultaneously so gruesome to consider, which is why we don't talk about these things enough. And we have to you know, we have to (laughs) make documentaries about it. And it's this kind of sensationalized thing, but this is actually what the human experience is about birth Mm -hmm. and death. And if we can't get those things right, fixing our world at large, I think is going to be very, very hard. So I find it so beautiful the way you even said that these experiences, yeah, it all, they, they, they do inform how you care for birthing women, but they also inform how you live your life. And while you said you're not afraid of death, nobody wants to die. No, but it's something we have to do. And I'm I'm interviewing Stephen Jenkinson tomorrow, who wrote a book called Die Wise, and he's the owner of the Orphan Wisdom School. And he he and I share this language around the privilege of dying. It's that moment where everything that happened before this, you get to put it all into a book at the very end of your life. And I'm talking on like on a deep in in in, in sort of personal level, mm-hmm. you get to take all of that and try to make some sense of it before you step through the door. And move on to the next place. There's a privilege there because you don't get that opportunity until you're there. You really can't until you're there. And and if we could reframe the lens of death as opposed to it being something we are so confronted by that we run away in fear, but rather embrace it as a part of the human experience, then we can actually start to show it, start showing up for one another in this compassionate way. We're just humans holding hands, walking one another home. And in the words of Ram Dass. Yeah. So your your life is probably richer than than most because you're perhaps willing to look through it at that lens. But I also want to emphasize what you said. Like you're nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to die. Nobody wants their baby to die. Nobody even wants to go through the the pangs of childbirth. But these are these rites of passage that I think we've lost with the loss of ritual and ceremony. Yes. Yeah. Man. Wow. I need to t- need to take a deep breath because I'm thinking about stories in my own life where it really, really did inform how I care for for myself, for my little baby girls, for my wife, and for my for my clients and patients. Yeah, Christine, what's you're doing a lot of work with Breach Without Borders as well. Talk to me about that work um, because you seem like the ultimate mentor, given you've experienced the wide range of possibilities as a midwife. Yeah. Oh, I feel so privileged to be able to work with them. It's um, uh, it's been a real honor since I got back from um, South Sudan. I've, I've filled in a couple 
times um, when they either had an overflow of students or one time day sick. And it was quite, it was just a three hour drive for me to get down there and fill in for him. And I was able to do it and I loved it. And I think they got a lot of positive feedback. And so they've tried to integrate me in some of their other, um, their other uh, simulation trainings out in the field. And then they just, because of COVID, um, they finally were able to schedule for New Zealand and Australia. And then they've had an overwhelming response. Wow. And um, they asked me to join them in New Zealand and Australia because they have too many students and not enough Rixa and David. There's only, <laughs> only There's only so much, so. you know, butter to be spread on the Australian <laughs> bread. <laughs> exactly. And so um, it's been really wonderful um, having that opportunity. You know, Rixa is just such a, an endless font of, you know, information incredible and statistics. Woman. And yeah. she's just, she's just a powerhouse. She's incredible. And, um, and then David, you know, I'm very, um, very outgoing and verbose and well I'm introverted but in when I teach I'm outgoing and I'm chatty and 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 David's kind of laconic just just this kind of yeah what are you gonna do now you know? <laughs> and so we have two different teaching styles so people that get to rotate through yeah. and do his and mine are getting two really di- they're doing the same maneuvers they're just getting two really different experiences and I tell a lot of little stories um in between so it's yeah, it's fun. I really like it. I've really enjoyed that opportunity. And I've gotten to meet some incredible people. Some There's obstetricians that are taking this course, and I'm just so delighted to see them. And they ask me questions, and what would you do with this? And they truly want to know. They're not asking it in a challenging or condescending way in any way, shape, or form. It's been just really delightful. And I it's given me some hope that we can slowly finally turn the tide on vaginal breech birth and bring it back uh, into the mainstream, not anytime really soon, but maybe hopefully by the time I, I die, uh, it will not be as, as rare as it is now in, um, in American hospitals. Yeah, I have. (laughs) So I, when I, when I was in residency, I met Stu Fishbein, who's out on the West coast and he's, he's published with Rixa and whatnot. And he came and spoke to us at a, a midday lecture, like a lunchtime lecture about breach. And I was like, mm-hmm. why aren't we learning this stuff? Who is this guy? And why can't uh-huh. I learn this? So I had to actually go and start working with him personally and attending home births and whatnot. And we never did go to a breach, actually a breach together, but I ended up convincing attendings when my program to let me attend breaches who came in and did one C-sections. And so we, you know, so we, um, you know, I got, I got some practice there and then I discovered Breach Without Borders, and I've hosted two of their workshops in Louisville. And but the, before that, I attended one in Pittsburgh, and I was just blown away. It was like, gosh, this would be yeah. so complementary to what we learned in OBGYN training. Yeah. You could still advertise that breach is unsafe or um, C-section is the right way. Fine, like we won't beat down that door yet. But at least right. teach me what to do if a woman comes in and a butt's coming out of the vagina and the, the body's not rotating to sacrum anterior. Maybe just show me a couple things just in case I yeah. end up being presented with that in MSF or anywhere yeah. else in the world where this isn't yeah. considered total, totally ludicrous for a baby to come out butt first. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's, uh, and, you know, they're making it better. You know, they're always tweaking the, the Breach Pro course, re- re-recording things just because it's in response to 
oh, new information that may be coming in or in response to some of the things, uh, feedback yeah. that they're getting from students. So yeah. um, it's, it's ever evolving. So even if you took it three years ago, you can take it again. There's always new information they're, they're They've got a lot more videos. It's just incredible. So yeah. I'm really excited wow. about working with them. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I hope to be able to meet you in person and, and maybe the next time we host Louisville, like I'll, I'll make a special request for Christine Laurie to come and stay with us for the <laughs> couple of days and we'll, we'll feed you all the good stuff and, and I'll get to hear yeah. more of your, your, your stories. Where would you like to see birth go? I mean, like what, what, what is the primary shift you'd like to see in the United States? Let's, let's leave breach out of the conversation because we all, okay. we all, I think want that for women to have the ability to exercise their autonomy um, as opposed to just being shunted off to the operating room for a baby who's butt down, whether it means higher, higher version attempts or simply, you know, being comfortable with a baby coming down butt first and allowing a woman t- to exercise her right to refuse treatment, this being C-section. Let's put that on the, on the, the side. What, based on all of your experience around the world, what is, where would you like to see maternity care in the United States go? What are some maybe three important things that you think should be addressed? Oh, I think first and foremost, we need to learn to listen to the people that are birthing. Mm. We need to, um, we need to respect autonomy and do a better job um, educating patients, taking a little bit more time rather than saying, okay, we're going to do this test now. And uh, I'll let you know what the results are when you come for your next visit. Uh, It's there. I think that the way we present um, a lot of the, the things that we do in standard uh, medicalized birth is this is how we do it. This is what we're going to do. This is how we do it. And everybody does it. And so that's, we're going to do it with you. No, not in yeah. a way where it's, um, there's any kind of choice um, in the matter. There's, uh, I think, very little informed choice. Mm. And so I, I think I would like to see that I would like to see trauma-informed care be a class in medical school. <laughs> um, you and me both. Or, um, wow. yeah. you know, I, I because I think there's a huge misconception with providers thinking that they, that, that they're not contributing to obstetric trauma because they're nice to their patients. And they don't understand that not being given all the choices or being coerced into a cesarean for whatever reason, let's just say for breach, yeah, is not that later on that it's it's traumatizing to women, even though we're saying, listen, you have to have a, a breach there, you have to have a, a cesarean, your baby's breach, and you know, your baby's head could get stuck. So we can't do it vaginally. Right. And, right. and then they later find out some of this wasn't true. Like they could have had a vaginal breach birth. And you know, so and women are being traumatized. Yeah. So I think providers think that just if they're being nice, it's not it's not trauma, right? Um, whereas we're seeing that it really is. And then there is actual trauma, trauma where, um, you know, women are having vaginal exams or getting episiotomies without consent. Yeah. Um, yeah. That just because, because, 
And um, I think, I mean, I've been there, I've been with women in hospitals and I've seen these things done. So I know what happens. Um, and I would just like to, I would like to see more humane treatment of, yeah. of women in the, in birth. And then I would like to see the birthing process recognized as in a healthy woman carrying a healthy baby, presumably, um, that they're just treated like, just like that. And there's not all these bells and whistles and um, they're really going out of their way to do a lot, make a lot of work for themselves when yeah. they treat a normal, <laughs> normal woman in labor, like, um, like they're really sick and they've got yeah. to put on all of these, uh, put in all these IVs and get the monitors on and do all of this stuff. They're creating a lot more work for themselves. Yeah. Whereas if yeah. they just say, yeah, just go in that room and we'll, Keep it dark and quiet and come in and check on you. You sure. ding this if you can feel something coming out, you know, like it, it, we we would be better served um, doing it that way. But yeah, so I don't know. It's it's going to it's a long time in coming, I think. Well, I mean, you effectively just described my entire practice, Christine, which is we need to honor a woman's rights to her autonomy, which includes informed consent and the right to refuse treatment and not implied consent etc. But like truly informed consent, not using just a nice voice, because if you don't, mm -hmm. if you don't provide adequate consent and a person doesn't feel like they're being heard or seen, then you end mm -hmm. up in that trauma informed care space. So that's the other, that's the other big one for me. And the third being that pregnancy is not a, a disease and birth is not a medical procedure. If we could get those three things, right. then we would have most of our issues in maternity care in the United States solved. Yeah. But unfortunately, we're, we're sometimes doing more harm than good, despite throwing a trillion dollars of medicine at a, at a natural physiologic process. And, yes. um, and I think it does help to have you say these things because you've also seen some alternatives to this. You've been around the world attending births. And I would venture to say that in many other locations, despite our, our platitudes and our niceties that we use when we're, when we're sitting down on the bed and making a person feel like we're attending to them, but we're, you know, we're instead actually being taught to use language in a way that it's going to make them go along with whatever the typical protocol or procedures are in our hospital. And I would venture to say that outside of the United States, that it's probably being done better in a lot of places, maybe worse in other places, but I think that there's always room for improvement. I think we just need to open our eyes up to that, to the possibilities of what could come with these simple changes. And I think you're going to be a great mentor in leading us forward. I really do. And I really, really appreciate you being in this space with me. Thank you. How could people find you if they wanted to reach out and, and connect with you? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> uh, I have an Instagram account that um, when I'm... Uh, when I'm traveling, I um, post a lot of things in, from the projects and things about my day. And when I'm not traveling, then it's mostly pictures of me, of my pug <laughs> 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 on, on my kayak and whatever, my garden, uh, Instagram. It's uh, at globalmidwife64 is my Instagram. Awesome. Well, we'll send people your way, Christine. Um, anything mm -hmm. new that you want to you know, promote or tell anybody about that you're working on? Anything in particular? Oh gosh, um, uh, no, just uh, just my work with uh, with Breach Without Borders, and um, I will be. I think you will be there too at the um, Augustine's um, conference in November. Um, yeah. The Midwifery Wisdom 
Experience Conference. Um, and I'll be talking about midwifery and from a humanitarian aid perspective. That's amazing. So, and then also do reach simulations with, with Rixa help, helping people um, work on their maneuvers. So yeah. right on, I'll stop in there and I'll, I'll get it my hands on one of those incredible silicone babies. If, if anybody out yeah. there is a birth worker, go to breach without borders, go to the training. The simulators are amazing. Now there are these very lifelike silicone babies with even like articulations and, and uh, it feels yeah. very real. It's, it's kind of, kind of uncanny yeah. actually yeah. <laughs> you yeah. feel like there's actually a birthing woman you like want to be very polite and say like is it okay if i touch you in this way and it's <laughs> it's a mannequin but uh it's it definitely um does the job in treat, teaching some of these maneuvers um it christine does. thank you thank you for being here with me and um i hope we'll stay in touch and um i'll see you in november awesome absolutely thank you so much it's been a pleasure alza la frente en alto y camina bien alza la frente en alto Alza la frente en alto y camina, alza la frente en alto, alza la frente en alto y camina bien, alza la frente en alto. That was an intense conversation. I thank you so much for listening with an open heart and an open mind to that. Really, really lovely conversation. And Christine, thank you for showing up in the world, showing up for women in the way that you do, and for families and for babies that are left without mothers. Thank you for doing that work. That's not something that a lot of us can do. So thank you. If you're enjoying this podcast, the Holistic Obi-Joanne podcast, consider leaving us a five-star review. It takes five seconds to do that. And really, the algorithm in iTunes only cares about how many five-star reviews you have. So if it takes five seconds and it's a way to support us, please support me. Help us get this show big and bold and out there in everybody's ear holes. And if you've already done that, thank you so much. You can also just continue sharing your epi- the episodes that you're most passionate about to all of your friends. Spread them around Instagram um, and social media. This has been a lot of fun. And as I see the podcast growing, which is, it's growing logarithmically now. <laughs> it's really launching. And I'm simultaneously shocked and impressed and very heartwarmed by the whole experience. So thank you for, for, for tuning in. And lastly, you know, if, if you haven't supported our sponsors, every purchase goes towards telling them that you like their products and you vote with your dollars. So Bioptimizers is the, is the uh, sponsor of this episode. If you're having any issues with sleep, go to magbreakthrough.com slash holistic Try magbreakthrough. You're not going to regret it. And if you buy three bottles or more through that link for a limited time, they're going to also throw some freebies in, a lot of digestive aids. They got their mass signs, their HCL breakthrough, and their P3OM, all of which I have on my shelf in my, uh, in my kitchen, in my cabinet. I take them regularly myself. And if I didn't believe in these and try them myself, I wouldn't be recommending them to you. So go to magbreakthrough.com slash holisticobgyn, support by optimizers. You're not going to regret it. It's just going to make you feel better, help you sleep better, etc. Remember, everything on the show is is educational. It's not medical advice. If you do want medical advice, go to BelovedHolistics.com. That's where you'll find me, Nathan Riley, MD, fellow of ACOG, the Holistic OBGYN. You'll find everything you need there, including my shop with all of the discount codes that you could possibly want to optimize your life. I continue to rotate codes through there because when I find a brand that is doing the best in its, in its class, I will just pop it in there and replace the other company. It's as simple as that. So I have vetted out the best products and brands. I use every one of them in my own life. I promise you that. 
I've got every single product somewhere. I'm wearing my blue light blocking glasses right now. I've got my biogeometry pendant on right now. I've got my home balancing kit set up. Like I've got a core harmonizer from Conscious Technologies LLC in our in our living room playing some deep 528 hertz healing healing music. You can find everything at the shop there. And you can sign up for my private association, which is the first step to getting me onto your care team. So remember, I can't say anything that could be construed as medical advice because I work in the private until you join my private association. So go there, click work with me. Once you join the private association, you'll then get access to my menu of services. And then we can start talking shop. You can do a one-off consultation. But if you're, if your issue has taken 10 years to develop, it's going to take more than one visit in order for us to get you back on the right track. So I generally recommend people buy a package of time with me. I do prioritize those visits over my one-off consultations from a scheduling standpoint. Like in other words, sometimes I, ch- I just stop taking one-off consultations because I just get too busy and I only take package um, purchasers. So one advantage there. There's also a lot of other perks that, that we can vet out if you join my PCA. If you have any questions, you can reach out through my website. I also have my collaborator program on the website whereby for a monthly, reasonable monthly donation, you'll get me in your back pocket through encrypted text. You can send me lab reports, imaging. You can say, I've done all these things. What would you do next? And I'll give you some other additional insight into how you can uh, best care for your client. So it really is just optimizing the care for your client if you think having an MD consultant is, is in your best interest. Remember, I don't like the allopathic, the conventional medical system any any more than anybody else. And I want to keep people out of it if possible. You know, unless they're in like a, a horrific plane crash and their head's dangling off its, you know, the, their spine or something, like there's very little reason ever to go to the hospital. It's all a matter of providing you with the resources for you to reharmonize with your surroundings. That's what I do in my practice. And that's what I can help you do for your patients and your clients knowing what the allopathic system has to offer, which sometimes is really great. Pharmaceuticals and surgery are sometimes helpful, but it's not everything. So that's all available at belovedholistics.com. I truly appreciate everybody who's listening to the show. Thank you so, so, so much. I feel the love. I feel it, baby. I feel it. And uh, when this episode, when you're, if you're listening to this episode now, I am at Burning Man, enjoying the burn with my two little girls and uh, my wife, and we are probably rolling around in loincloths with war paint on our faces, just having the time of our lives. So wish us well. Um, send some love at Instagram. I'm at Nathan Riley, OBGYN. I will see you all in a couple days. Episode um, 83. I'm sorry, episode uh, uh, 84, excuse me. The first of uh, September, that one's dropping. It's Stephen Jenkinson, y'all. Yes. The guy who started Orphan Wisdom School. Yes, the guy who authored Dying Wise. This guy, Die Wise, excuse me. This guy is a genius. He's like Charles Eisenstein level genius. He's Christine Laria level genius. Doria Kareem level genius. I'm getting the best of the best. My mentors from afar, the people I look up to the most. In this episode with Stephen is all about our grapples with death in birth and beyond. It is a very heartfelt conversation, and this guy is very, very, very attuned to the human experience. He started off as a palliative care um, social worker up in Ontario and realized the same things that I realized when I was in the healthcare system, especially as it pertains to chronic illness and end-of-life care, that we are doing things bass-ackwards. So you're going to love this interview with Stephen Jenkinson. I can't wait for you to hear it. I'll see you all in just a few days for that one. Take care. Alza la frente en alto y camina bien. Alza la frente en alto. 
Alza la frente en alto y camina. Alza la frente en alto. 